शिशिराजी को पाल की जाए को भक्त बिंद की जाए गोर प्रेम अनंदे लीविंग एवरीवन कम क्लोजर प्लीज questions tonight maybe we talk a little bit about the history of our tradition we have some guests and we can try to include you a little bit in more with a more broader kind of discussion welcome <laughs> um, the chanting um that we just uh, participated in and experienced has uh, a long history actually um it's uh it, the chant itself uh, dates back to um the oldest uh of the sacred texts of the hindus which is quite a body of literature it's perhaps the most voluminous body of literature on the earth secular or sacred hmm? um, and the particular body of literature within the sacred texts of the hindus that this mantra comes from is is called uh, is referred to as the upanishads you might have heard of the upanishads well the word uh, upanishad means to sit close the idea behind that is that if you want to tell something to somebody secret they have to come close so the knowledge contained within those particular texts the upanishads is not for uh, the general consumption of the public in as much as the general public is not that much interested in in the interior landscape as much as they are in exploiting the external uh landscape with a kind of egocentric uh perspective which causes us to look at the world as if it's ours to take and use as we want and we're the center of it nothing could be further from the truth um and so that's a recipe for frustration when we knowingly or unknowingly proceed in life with the view that i am the center we have input that we gather from our senses things that we hear sounds that we hear sights that we see um aromas that we smell um things that we taste and so forth these send images or impressions to the mind and the mind says i like that smell i don't like that sound for example so the mind in this general way is making these decisions based on input from the senses about what's out there hmm? and we all have different senses so we all come up with different mental determinations as to what's good or what's bad what's happy what's sad so we live in this kind of small not so sovereign domain 
if you will, of our own mind, where our goods and our bads, our happies and sads, are to one extent or another in conflict with the happies and sads, goods and bads, and so forth of, of everyone else. Hmm? The comforting factor, if you will, of the small world of our mind is that we are allowed to think that we're big. Hmm? That's not a lot of comfort uh, when we actually are not. But to come out of it is a bit formidable, and that's what yoga is about. To come out of the small world of the mind with its judgments on the environment, this is good, this is bad, and so forth, and, and fitting the whole world within our mind, hmm? expecting that everyone should be comfortable within our own mind when we are ourselves are not comfortable um, in that small world. It's really quite unreasonable. But um, yoga and spiritual practice from the East is about coming out of the small world of the mind. The beautiful thing about that is when we come out of the small world of the mind, we see how small we are, but we also see the one, the center, the actual center that's big, and friendly as well. Hmm? So it's not bad to be small if you've got a big friend, something like that. <laughs> but trying to be big is, is a pretty small idea, <laughs> um, in a sense. So, mantra, uh, the word man means mind, and tra means deliver, so mantras are these sounds from the Upanishad, these kind of secret sounds that... that they're, they're for the public, but the public is just pretty, pretty much not interested being carried away by, um, by the outer picture, if you will. Hmm? We're, we're kind of taken over, if you will, by, the, by the, the picture of the world to an extent that we tend to lose sight of ourselves and our, the possibility of life within. It's something like if you turn on a television... Well, obviously, the viewer is more important than the television, but it is possible for the television to take over the life of the viewer, and that becomes a problem, right? You have to come and say, you've got a life separate from that thing. Come out and uh, don't be a couch potato your whole life, something like that. So the world has a glare and a glitter, if you will, um, that attracts us, units of consciousness that we are, not human, not male, not female, not black, not white, not, not Costa Rican, not uh, Asian, Indian, or American, North or South. These are all just uh, passing phases uh, that we um, move through. The world of matter is constantly transforming, uh, taking shape and then transforming into something else from ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And we are observing the changes. So the fact that we can observe the change indicates that we're separate from it, not part of it. And so yoga is about honing that truth, realizing, experiencing that truth more fully. I'm separate from the ever-changing material uh, phenomenon. I'm the observer. And, um, and what makes matter matter is, is me. If the world mattered independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care about it? Consciousness is the knower, the carer, and we are a unit of such consciousness. And so the secret, in a very broad sense, of the Upanishads 
is that there are sounds, mantras, sacred sounds that can deliver us, if you will, from the small world of our mind and take us into a much bigger picture. Is the world hot or cold, or is that just a a limited reading of what is the nature of being? What's out there and what's inside thinking about it? These are the two questions of life. What's out there? And who's asking the question? That's what <laughs> yoga is about, sorting that out, if you will. And who's in there, the observer, hmm, is really wonderful. Hmm. And so, the particular, then to go further historically, if you will, the particular chant, the mantra that we were chanting, the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, it's mentioned in these Upanishads, and it's mentioned um, such that it's recommended for the time in which we live. Hmm? And in a broad sense, this time is called the Kali Yuga. It's a time of, of in some respects, of discord, and, and we see that in the world. Um, and this, this mantra is said to be a remedial measure for the discord um, in the world and, and within ourselves. The history of its being chanted as we chant it is more recent. 500 years ago, a great um, um, spiritual figure in the world, Sri Chaitanya, uh, uh, brought the chanting to the world in the way in which we do it. You, taking that mantra from the Upanishads, accompanied with simple um, instruments. The instruments here that we chant with are these simple cartels. Uh, They're called hand cymbals made of bell metal. Hmm? And um, a drum, a clay drum, indigenous instruments that, that are, are uh, simple. Um, and, and, and the mantra is couched in the context of kind of a folk type of, of music uh, relative to uh, West Bengal of India where these, this great spiritual figure Sri Chaitanya, the founder of our tradition, uh, appeared in the world and advocated and, and, and engaged in this type of what we call kirtan. Kirtan is a sacred type of, of singing. And so the, the genre of music, if you will, that the mantra has been couched in in this uh, chanting in the way which we do it is kind of a folk genre that it lends itself to um, uh, reciprocation. Mm-hmm. It's not like a classical type of music where you kind of just got to sit back in a stuffy way and, mm-hmm. and, and listen to it in, in, in your mind, but you can't, and it's not participatory. It's a type of music that's very down to earth, if you will, and participatory in nature. And so through it, the mantra seeks to share itself. And typically it's sung like this with one person leading and then then the response. Lead and response. Call and response, which which also images or, or, or brings up to mind or kind of conjures up the, the image of the world as it's understood uh, by the Hindus and the yogis. A world that's coming and going in cycles. Hmm? Cycles. Endless cycles. The world, the universe manifests 
it becomes unmanifest. It manifests again. There's no beginning to these cycles, though each cycle has a beginning and an end. This is, um, again, a, just kind of a brief mention of the cyclical nature of time as it's understood by the yogis. Whereas in modern society, beginning with the scientific revolution in the um, in, in, within the context of Christianity, there's the idea of linear time. The time began at a certain time, it's linear, it's going to go for a certain amount of time, and that'll be it. Well, the Hindus and many other uh, uh, cultures around the world, the vast majority of them, um, posited and, uh, and continue to cyclical time rather than linear time. And it's very beautiful, actually, the idea of cyclical time. Of course, the seasons go in cycles, and nature seems to work like that. Um, um, the planets orbit around uh, the sun, and the world orbits around consciousness. Hmm? Um, but one of the aspects of this cyclical time, in comparison to linear time, is that cyclical time presents kind of a whole and harmonious uh, picture, if you will. In other words, let's take, for example, a line drawn on a piece of paper. It doesn't really pacify the mind. It tends to agitate the mind. It's a line. What does it mean? It's just a line. Hmm? And you can't really... You can only define any particular point on the line by reference to the point that comes before it. Hmm? And so, which comes first? The seed or the tree? It's a little better than the chicken or the egg example. Which comes first, the seed or the tree? If time is linear, this question, which is a, a, actually a meaningful question, what comes first, the seed or the tree? It's kind of Zen, if you will, and doesn't quite fit between the ears. But if time is linear, you can't really answer it. If time is cyclical, however, which comes first, the tree or the seed, is answered. Because you can look at the whole picture and you can say, in a very Zen-like way, neither one. <laughs> Both, so to speak. So... Um, uh, in other words, uh, there, the, uh, Hinduism and the yoga world posits an existence that has no beginning. Whatever exists has always existed. Whatever does not exist will never exist. Something like that. Now, of course, there are the coming and the goings of the shapes of things. Matter takes a form and then that form ch- change and transforms and so forth. Um, but uh, real things, if you will, hmm, that are considered real by measure of their endurance, have no beginning, they have no end, we are such. We have no beginning, we have no end, the world cycles have no beginning, have no end. It's a really nice space to get into, actually, if you can try to enter into that. It's a very, it, 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 um, it, it, it brings some closure. Hmm? and harmony. It, it, it posits a harmonious, purposeful uh, sense of existence rather than just this line hmm, drawn 
randomly. Time began, time will end. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> it's a different perspective. And as I said the other night, uh, drawing from uh, something from the Buddhists, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that, that uh, these type of perspectives are not a failure to, um, to attain modernity, where it's thought all the questions of life are being answered and there's unlimited, uh, uh, there's an ongoing uh, uh, movement of progress. They're not a failure to, to attain the ideal of modernity, modernity they're a, a different way of looking at life altogether that brings into question whether the modern world and what's called progress, there's some kind of progress, but whether it's progress in terms of answering the questions of human life hmm, that are so pressing, the existential uh, questions of life, that's, or whether that just tends to ignore them, hmm, dismiss them, hmm, and even tend to do away with meaning and purpose. How disconcerting is that? So, so the yogic perspective is an old and ancient one that has currency in, in modern times that looks at the world with a, different, uh, with a different eye and with a different understanding of what progress means. Hmm? And it's about going, experiencing, as I say, the self within, rather in the fullness of the self within, rather than thinking that by adding things onto my life, I'm going to become more and better. Um, it's said that the best things in life are not things. We're not a thing. Neither we are a thought about things. Neither a thought alone, but there are thoughts that lead to experiencing a self that transcends body and mind. Hmm? That means that that resides beyond time and space, again, that has no beginning and has no end. So, as simple and beautiful, in one sense, uh, certainly, as the chanting is, it's very profound also, and and it seeks to... The chanting, as we do it, has... An underlying, uh, I want to say, ground of philosophy uh, that's uh, significant. Hmm? It is not an irrational act, but neither is it a rational act. The chanting. It was what we might call a transrational act, an act that picks up where reason leaves off, concluding beforehand that reason unto itself cannot bring us conclusive knowledge. Hmm? That there is a self that transcends the mind and reason, and therefore reason is subordinate to it and not its teacher. Hmm? Partially, but not completely. Hmm? So there's a self that transcends reason. Reason has its uh, limits. uh, any reason can be supplanted by another reason, even that reasoning. Hmm? Right? Tarko Pratishtana. So, if we want to get real standing in 
comprehensive knowing, the, the premise is that we have to find a means by which we can arrive at knowing that transcends the limits of knowing that can be derived from reasoning. If the self is transcendent to the limits of reason, then reason cannot reveal the self unto itself. It can be an instrument to a tool that can be used as the body can as well in a trans-rational exercise. Again, this is not an irrational exercise, but a trans-rational, one that picks up where reason lays off. In other words, it's reasonable to chant such a mantra. Hmm? Properly understood. We could go on and on about it, but it's reasonable. Hmm? And, And the reasoning is partly that this is an exercise coming from the sacred texts that that derive from the meditative experience of the rishis, the sages, hmm, who find satisfaction in the self to the extent that they find no need to move, hmm, or move only out of celebration of their fullness, hmm, not out of perceived necessity that if I don't move, someone may eat me. That's basically material life. If you don't move, someone will eat you. Someone will consume you. We're consuming others, and others are consuming us. We're hunters, and we're being hunted also. That's a Darwinian, you know, partially perspective, right? Struggle for existence, but there's an end to the struggle. Pulling out of it. Stop hunting, and you won't be hunted. Hmm? How will I do that? That is, uh, that is the idea of yoga, hmm? of spiritual pursuit. Hmm? Uh, and so the, um, the chanting, the mantra, as I say, the, comes from these sacred texts that manifest within the meditative experience of extraordinary people who arguably have ended the struggle of life and are superhuman and supernatural because they've been able to harness the human passions, which is an interesting idea that everybody advocates is is good on some level, but to do it completely, that's if not a very easy thing to do, to harness your human, your human passions, hmm. to be equibalanced in all uh, the ups and downs of life and so forth. Uh, we were talking about it the other night. To love your neighbor, like the Bible says, as your friend, as yourself, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? How long can you do it without going to a higher level of understanding what your neighbor is? In the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, the highest yogi is he or she who experience the suffering experiencing the suffering experiences excuse me the suffering of others as if it is her own suffering in other words by yoga we can go to we can enter into the underlying foundation 
of existence, the ground of being that consciousness is part of, and there we find a unity and we can experience the suffering of others as if it's our own. Because hmm? we are all consciousness in different dress and so forth. So, really that simple s- suggestion, love your neighbor like yourself, is a, quite a yogic art to arrive there. It's it's nice to say, but it's superhuman. Jesus could do it, but he was pretty extraordinary, is the point. Hmm? But people like that set an example. What better example in life do we have of how we could become, of what we could be, how we could be all we could be? Everybody wants to be all that they could be. You could join the army. I mean, you could play sports. You could do this or you could that. You could become a Jesus. That's not on the list, usually. Hmm? Even within the religious traditions, you take modern Christianity, for example, it's like I was once uh, at a, at a, at a, uh, in a public venue and there was a booth and there were some religious people at the booth. And so I was interested in what they were talking about and, and, and they said, we have a question for you. They were taking a survey. I said, well, well what's the question? And they said, have you ever sinned? It was kind of, like, kind of silly in a sense. And of course, the answer was supposed to be yes. Therefore, you're not perfect. And here is one person that never sinned. His name is Jesus. Therefore, you should take shelter of him because everyone has sinned. I said, I think everyone is supposed to become like Jesus. <laughs> that would be, that would be, a, is that possible? <laughs> they thought it wasn't possible. So they remained flawed, if you will, and thought somebody's saved and he's going to vouch for us. Something like that was kind of the, But the yogic idea is, that such persons like the Jesus, the Chaitanyas, the Rumis, in different religious traditions, amongst the Sufis and the Hindus and the Buddhists and so forth, these people stand like great lighthouses on the shore hmm, while we float at night, tossing and turning in the ocean of material emotions, hmm, wondering, is there any land? Is there any firm ground to stand on? Hmm? And the lighthouse says, yes. It's over here, hmm? embodied by great saintly people in the in the history of human society. These great uh, luminaries hmm? who demonstrate practically through their example that there is a supernatural, and you're a unit of the supernatural, hmm? a unit of consciousness, and you can realize that. Hmm? It may take some time, but it's a goal worth uh, pursuing. Hmm? You can't get it at the university. You can't get it at, uh, well, in spiritual practice you can get it. Within you can get it, by going within. So, so the, the, the mantra comes from the meditative experience of those types of people. And then it's, it's, it's shared, it's been shared in this way. So what I want to say is that that it is a transrational exercise because it comes from beyond the mind, beyond reason. It's not unreasonable, but it can take us where reason unto itself cannot. We should use our reason as a tool to go there knowing its own limitations. Hmm? We could use our reason to reason about the limits of reason that we might embrace something that, a vehicle that transcends the limits of reason. That's what yoga is. Hmm? It's not an outward exercise 
of body and mind to to improve your body and mind for a better body a better sex life or whatever people use it for that i suppose but what yoga is really about is for is for finding this the secret of the self within it's meant for humans to assist them in doing the thing that human life is unique. You can do this in human life. You can directly pursue the self that is there in all species of life, but in human life comes to know about itself. In human life we start to ask, why? Why? You hear this? You hear the sounds of the jungle? If you listen carefully with your mind, you realize what they're saying is how, how, how to eat, how to avoid danger, how to sleep, how to, how to mate. <laughs> they're not asking why. Why am I? Hmm? So the Atma, consciousness, in the less complex forms of life, are not in vehicles, if you will, that afford them the opportunity to think about why am I? They're too busy how to eat because if they're not, if they're not, somebody else will eat it. Hmm. So human life is very beautiful in this sense that because. Obviously, in human life, we need to eat, we need to sleep, we need people mate, and that's why we're all here, and so forth. But the why question comes. Why am I? What is the purpose, the meaning, value? You see, these questions are not part of matter. They're part of consciousness. Consciousness wants to know why. Asks about meaning, purpose, not quantity, hmm? but quality. Hmm? Human life itself is a question. Why am I? Hmm? And we should pursue that question with the tools of our body and mind. Hmm? Use the body and mind as tools to go within and explore he or she who's asking the question. Consciousness. Why? Purpose. Meaning. And when we ask that question and use the tools as is directed, for example, in the sacred texts, we find out something wonderful about ourselves and our purpose, and we then become also in a position to be caretakers of the world, if you will, and the less complex forms of life that's very that can endear us to them, that's kind and gentle, we cited the example last night of St. Francis of Assisi, who referred to the uh, Mr. Tree, Mrs. Robin, hmm? Brother Sparrow. Hmm? He was a yogi. Hmm? He loved his neighbor like himself. Some people invoke this statement, love your neighbor like yourself. They don't even think that the animals are your neighbors. 
or the birds are your neighbors, neighbors, the bees are your neighbors, the trees, right? What did we hear the other day? The trees, they sleep at night, isn't it? You study them carefully, you see a certain part, they start to close down a little bit, you really look up and they go to sleep. Hmm? What else then? They wake up. Hmm? And they communicate with one another too. Hmm? They have a form of communications. Hmm? Now it's just beginning in the scientific community. They thought for a long time that that, that um, consciousness is only in humans. Now they've discovered even insects have egos. Hmm? But in the human form of life, all this can be thought about, talked. Isn't that something extraordinary? Now, can that not? Does that have the capacity to consume our human life? That idea? Suddenly in human life, a new door, a secret door has opened to the inner landscape. We have already traversed the external landscape. Within Hinduism and yoga, we have the idea of reincarnation. You have already surfed the world as a dolphin. You have surfed the ocean <laughs> as a dolphin. Hmm? Hmm? Yeah. You, 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 you've touched the clouds as an eagle. Hmm? You've, you've gone deep into the soil with, as, as a tree with your roots hmm? and got nourishment from there. Hmm? We've roamed the world as a quadruped. Hmm? We've, we've experienced it in so many ways. Now we have human life. We have the opportunity to experience an, a, a secret door, a magical door to the inner landscape. We've traversed, experienced, tasted, flown over, walked on, ran on, fallen on, <laughs> dug, buried ourselves within the outer world, human life inner world opportunity opens. And yoga is an ageless, timeless methodology, technology for exploring that world. And there are examples of those who have experienced it. And how, again, how how tall do they stand in human society? How kind are they? To attain universal compassion? Is that not a good idea? How will you do that? By politics, it won't happen. <laughs> Especially in North America. <laughs> it won't happen. Hmm? By yoga, it can happen. Hmm? To you. It's a grassroots movement here. Change yourself. Hmm? Explore your, the, the, the inner world. This is, what, is this not a, a proposal that suddenly a new door opens? And goodness, how deep is it? How deep is the world of consciousness compared to the world of matter? Matter is only riding on the surface of consciousness. Mm. Mm. The worlds, the world of matter is like the islands that come out of the sea and then recede again. Come out like a mountain, do a volcano, recede again, the ocean, over time. The ocean of consciousness, this is the enduring, underlying ground of being. Hmm? We can go there. We can learn to dance even on the ground of being. To speak of stand on it, 
to dance on it. So, so some history, if you will, about the chanting and what we're all involved in here. I share it with you um, briefly tonight. Any further? Well, any questions about that? What is the time? Yes. I have a question regarding today the Jiva Goswami's disappearance day. Uh huh. And wondering um, if you had any disciples or if there's any proof or evidence on the show for that. Jiva Goswami was a lone uh, disciple of Rupa Goswami. Um, it does appear that he had um, many, many students of his own, but only in the capacity of a Siksha Guru. He became the Siksha Guru, the instructing Guru, of all the Gaudiya and Oriyan Vaishnavas after the departure of Rupa Sanatan. So many people were initiating disciples, students, students and so forth. He was the final word in the teachings hmm, for all of them. So he absorbed himself in, in writing. Many people initiated and had lineages and so forth. But during that time, he was the the consummate instructing, as we call it, guru, shiksha guru, for every all the Vaishnavas. Hmm. Did that help? Jiva Goswami Prabhupada Ki Jai. There's a saying, and we'll conclude with this, in the Bhagavatam, Jivo Jivasya Jivanam. What it means, literally, is one living being is food for another. We touched on it earlier. That's kind of the unfortunate and um, uh, frightening nature of the world. One living being is food for another. But the saint whom you're talking about, whose birthday is today, and now our lineage, Jiva Goswami, his name was Jiva. Jiva means life. It means the Atma, the individual unit of consciousness. So one living being, a Jiva, who's identified with the body, is food for another living being who's identified with the body. Hmm. But there's another interpretation of that Bhagavatam saying, that other Gaud- the Gaudiya people in our tradition over the centuries have applied to Jiva Goswami. What is it? That this one Jiva can give life to all Jivas. Mm-hmm. Rather than one Jiva is food for another, this one Jiva, Jiva Goswami, he can give food to everyone. He can feed everyone. Mm. Hmm? He can nourish everyone. Mm. Hmm? With the real real food of human society, the food of understanding mm. hmm? and love. Jiva Goswami, Prabhupada ki jai. Siddhaji Gopal ki jai. Gaur Bhakti Vrinda ki jai. Gaur Premanandi.